0: Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town.
1: This is Danielle Town.
0: And we are here for the Invested Podcast, where we're talking about investing. And we're thinking, you know, that it might be a little interesting to talk about the election that's happening tomorrow.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've been doing this multi-part series, Dad, on our typical, like, what are the four principles of investing according to Charlie Munger which has been awesome, and I think we're on part seven, maybe? Yeah, on seven. Part, like, yeah, I'd seven, say or seven. But we're gonna take a little break from our multi-part series because, um, yeah, this massive election is happening in the US, and we both thought that we should not ignore that, and we should address it from an investing perspective.
0: Yeah, and there's a guy that uh, did some research on this, and uh, and I'll look him up while we're talking, and I'll, I'll get you guys the data, or we'll put it on the website. Um, where he he found that um, if the incumbent party, the president from the incumbent party, is in a time coming up to the election where the S&P 500 has gone down that year, in the election year.
1: Okay, during the year of the election, but before the election?
0: Yeah, so like on the day of the election, if the S&P 500 is lower than it was when it started in January 1st. okay the incumbent president loses the incumbent president's party loses okay all right and if seven, loses 7 out of 8 times
1: ah not every okay so there is an exception
0: there is an exception
1: and this year the market's been down right
0: it's just down i mean just down just meaning just like down. barely well the s&p has had the longest losing streak since 1980 coming into this election,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: somehow it is only down like three or 4%. Let me just check here while we're yakking. I'll, I'll, take, I'll check out where it is.
1: Okay, but, so it's slightly down, which would indicate that Trump is going to win, is what, according to this guy's model.
0: Yeah, seven out of eight times Trump would win. I mean, you here's think the thing, though. you got to think if this there's ever been... an eighth time, it would be this
1: one. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. I mean, I, I've read articles about how political science professors are having to completely revamp their political science classes because of what's happened in this election. And no experts thought that any of this was going to happen. So, uh, so yeah, I'd say this is the eighth time if there ever was one.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, such an interesting election, character aside. You know, issues about the person aside from both sides. Mm-hmm. You have an election in the America which is, which is not your typical two-dimensional left versus right election. And I don't even know if this has ever happened. I guess maybe sometime it must have. But, I mean, it's really, really interesting, interesting election here. It's gotten off the two-dimensional grid substantially because of it Trump's populism. Not-
1: It's not the predictable way.
0: That's for sure. So, that's what I want to
1: ask you about regarding uh, investing, my investing practice that I'm working on. I've been thinking and wondering so, here's this huge election coming up. We know it's happening. It's not an event that's a surprise, but it's an event. The way we talk about events in Rule One investing, right? Like a thing that would affect the price of a company on the stock market without necessarily affecting its underlying value?
0: And the answer is yes and no. In other words, an event is something that does affect the stock price. And we're a day ahead. So we don't know if this is going to affect the stock price or not. We don't know.
1: How do elections usually affect a stock market? They do, right?
0: They do, um, they, what happens in the market, but not in a way that we as long-term investors should, should be uh, particularly concerned about. The, the way we talk about- So that's,
1: yeah, that's, that's what I've been thinking. Is rule one is so long-term oriented, is this something that I should really be concerning myself with that much?
0: And the, the answer really is yes and no, okay? Okay,
1: okay, um, so go ahead. Okay, go ahead.
0: so here's the thing. If the if the market is shaky coming into this election, and it is, it, it the S and P five hundred peaked. I'm just looking at the chart right now. When I say I'm looking at the chart, what I mean is I have brought up um, the brokerage that I I trade on, and yeah. um, and it has charts associated with it, as every brokerage online brokerage does. And charts I,
1: of what's been happening in the market.
0: Yeah. So a chart means you can is a, um, a visual representation of the price over time um, okay. of that particular stock or the entire market itself, which is, uh, w- depending on which index you'll use to look at, quote, the entire market. Um, and on that point, really, you should know, maybe you should jot this down, that there are um, several ways to look at, quote, the entire market, which mm-hmm. makes it rather interesting, right? There's at least three good ones that are all justifiable um, to look at the entire market.
1: Okay, so give me give me (laughs) two, and then give me the one that you just used.
0: Okay, all right. So here comes two. Um, The broadest index in the market is called the Wilshire 5000.
1: Oh yeah, you've mentioned that one.
0: the Wilshire 5000. Five
1: thousand stocks.
0: That's five thousand stocks, right? and that one is it it's is and when we think about the stocks in the stock market you know some people think that there's millions of them but there aren't um probably in the united states there's maybe ballpark 14,000 companies that are public in one way or another and mm-hmm. not all of those are tracked on the major on the major indexes or in the major markets because they're too small they can't they both can't afford to be on it because it costs money to be there and the mark those those markets don't want them because they're not they're not a a they're too volatile they're just um, some of them are just really sort of uh, shell corporations that don't really have anything going on mm-hmm. some of them are really small little mining companies that are just absolute roll of the dice and you know the stock's trading for three cents you know and and so there are regulations on each of these markets about how much your stock has to be trading for and how many shares of it have to be moving around uh, in terms of buying and selling every day. And what they're trying to do is trying to make sure that there's nothing in their marketplace that isn't pretty actively traded,
1: uh, mm. right?
0: They just don't want stuff sitting there. Um, well,
1: because the nature of a stock exchange is to have liquidity of those companies that are traded on it. and a company that rarely has any stock being bought or sold is by definition not very liquid.
0: Right, exactly. So liquid, by the way, means that it, you can move in and out of it, you can buy it and sell it quickly. And um, that's a tremendous advantage of being in a, uh, a stock market, in a public stock. And it's such a huge advantage that I think I could make a pretty good case that it doubles the value of the company. Well, let me put this a different way. It doubles the price of the company. <laughs> it doubles the value.
1: <laughs> but 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 you're right, I think that it it gives some value to the investor. I don't know if it's double, but it definitely actually provides a real life financial value to the investor to be able to get into that company super easily with minimal transaction costs, like minimal costs to the deal and to be able to get out even more importantly of that transaction easily, again, with minimal costs to the deal. Whereas in a private transaction, you know, if you invest in a private company, there's huge costs, not to mention like lawyers, accountants, filings, all the things that a lot of companies have to do. Um, but, but also just the time to, to negotiate that deal, um, and plus finding a, another buyer. So there's lots of issues with a private deal that just don't exist in the public markets.
0: Yep, exactly. And for that reason, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about, and I think we've talked about this briefly, um, talk about a fair value for a company, a fair price for a company. And what they mean by that is, is that they want to buy the company at a private company price, All right? Now think about why, and from their point of view, right? Buffett has bought many, he probably owns 60 companies that are private. And so the, from their point of view, you gotta think, why would I, if I'm buying this company to hold it for the rest of my life, why would I wanna pay for liquidity, which I'm not gonna use, right? I'm buying it and holding it forever, Or the other thing that's good for public companies is transparency, right? You got all this information that's been collected for you uh, by law, and they don't need that either because they know the business so well already. They're just very comfortable with buying those businesses. So the major two reasons to pay more for a public company are useless to Buffett and Munger, pretty much.
1: But they're useful to us. They're useful to us, the small investor.
0: They are because Otherwise, we wouldn't have the resources to buy all of a private business, right? We just don't have that kind of money, most of us. Um, yeah, sure, we could go down and buy a laundromat. That would be okay. And if you did that, you could kind of see the difference between public and private is pretty significant. If you buy a laundromat down, you know, downtown someplace, and let's say you it's making a thousand dollars a month, and you buy it for you know, maybe it's profit, right, totally good books, everything's accounted for, including management, and you're making $1,000 a month, using a 10 cap view of that, that we've talked about as a way of valuing the business, we'd say, well, I want that $1,000 that's coming into my pocket to represent 10% yield per year on the price I pay for the laundromat. So I would pay $10,000 for the laundromat. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then I would be re- sorry. What I, I said, thousand a month, so it's twelve thousand a year. I'd pay one hundred twenty thousand for the laundromat. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And so, in the context of an event like an election, we would look to the public markets just because, again, because of that liquidity, right? I mean, that's something where you would you would be able to say, okay, I'm going to get in because I think something's going to happen, or I'm going to get out because I think something's going to happen. But do we want to think like that in rule one? Is that a is that something that's useful?
0: Well, coming back to the election in half a second, I just realized what I'm thinking about here. When I'm looking at a private company like that, um, my starting point is that I would let laundromat, I don't want to get anybody too far off here. <clears throat> my starting point is that <clears throat> I would be interested in buying that thing and Since it's going to pay me $12,000 a year, I might pay $120,000 for it, but it's private. And so actually, I'm going to reduce it substantially for two reasons. Number one, it's private, so it's not liquid. And number two, it is probably already maxed out. It's probably doing the business that it can do. Um, There's nothing I can do to increase the business that it's going to do. It's not sub-optimized, so I'm probably going to look to pay you know, more like probably 70,000, 60,000. My first offer is probably gonna be 50,000, something mm-hmm. like that. So I just just wanna get everybody's feet on the ground about their private business. It's probably not gonna go for 120,000. So okay. first off, I just wanna correct something that if I were to offer money for this laundromat that's making $12,000 a year, I'd probably start at about four or five times those owner that owner earnings. Because it's a private business and because it's illiquid, and because the books are not transparent, and because I'm gonna assume it's not suboptimal. It's it's already doing as well as it can do. Uh, so I'm gonna to try to end up buying that for something like six or seven uh, times the owner earnings, rather than 10, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, yeah. I'm gonna be stuck yeah. with it. So I'd like to see if I can get a higher rate of return. Plus, because it's small, I'm probably gonna to have to manage it. You know, it's probably, not going to be able to afford to have a manager in there, or so on. So anyway, just wanted to get your feet on the ground, everybody who's listening to this and owns a laundromat and goes, "Oh, hey, Phil Town will buy it for hundred twenty thousand dollars." No, I <laughs> won't. All right, back to the election. So,
1: <laughs>
0: so, look, I mean, well, I look, mean, look, you're,
1: you're, so go here, ahead.
0: here's the point: is that yeah, me buying the laundromat isn't going to be affected by the election at all,
1: right? And that's where
0: you're going. With that. Right, it's no impact <laughs> whatsoever, and so that's how we ought to think about it in general. But here's And the just fact. to clarify,
1: just to clarify, I, I do think a laundromat or any small business might be affected by the policies of whoever we elect. Oh, but oh. what you mean actually is the the actual event of the election on Tuesday won't necessarily directly affect a given private business right away.
0: Right. Oh yeah, 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 very very well said. So, let's think about a public business though and what we might be thinking about Coming into the election. So, first we might look at what's happened in previous elections to the stock market. And it turns out that yeah, the, what st-
1: has happened? the stock
0: me. market gets really volatile in November um, on really? an election year. Yeah, really, really volatile. Even
1: if it's like clear who's going to win, the stock market still freaks out because people just are hedging and always worried.
0: Well, I'm trying to think if I looked at it on any time when it was really clear who's going to win.
1: Well, I guess it's never. <laughs> in- no, I mean in a modern era, I don't think there's been a huge blowout since. Um, wasn't Dukakis the last one?
0: Probably, and that's that the was point a while ago. is that these elections have been really, really close, one yeah. after the other. Um, so if you're coming into a, this election, you don't really know who's going to win. Let's like let's say Obama in um, two thousand and eight when he yeah. his first run. So here's this here's this uh, really tight election and nobody knows who's going to win. And the market starts getting volatile, starts getting volatile and actually on some of the indicators that I look at, the market got real volatile actually before that election in the, in the previous year, like in the end of '07 and the beginning of 08, it got, so, it got so volatile and I was seeing so many indications that the market was overpriced and big indicators saying get out, that I got out of the market pretty much everything by the uh, by the, by November December of 2007. And so I was already in cash when when the volatility kicked in bigger at the end of 2008. And the market was going down like a brick. But remember, this was when we had the freeze up of credit, right? Yeah, right I mean I'm not sure
1: that that was directly attributable to the election.
0: Probably not. So um, right before Obama before Obama, I think the market was down 30%. Okay, so that was an anomaly in terms of the the amount of volatility. That was crazy volatility, sort of once-in-a-generation cratering of the market. All right, but we look back at other markets, and we see that repeatedly we see the market down 8%, 9%, 6%. Pretty healthy big moves um, moving through the market. So um, in terms of what we're doing as a long-term investor, the only thing that means is that maybe something that isn't on sale now might go on sale by the end of November. So probably the biggest change for me, if there is one, would be to pay more attention to those lists of companies I have on my watch list to see if something's really getting hammered.
1: You know, that's a really interesting point. Basically, what I heard you say is, you see this as a systemic event rather than a company-specific event, and systemic events can affect companies that we're watching to get a better price. Yeah, I like
0: that systemic event thing. What does systemic mean?
1: <laughs> Meaning it's system-wide. <laughs> okay,
0: okay, system-wide. All right, in other words, something that is not directly related to the company that we're following, like you know, its oil well broke in the Gulf or something, it's,
1: exactly, and also not even industry-specific. It's it's something that's going to affect every company on a U.S. stock exchange and probably affect companies on non-U.S. stock exchanges.
0: Yeah, and you know what? There's a, there's a real interesting thing about that for people who are sitting in mutual funds and for all my friends who believe that broad, what I would consider, massive over-diversification is the way to go by buying all kinds of things, hundreds of companies through ETFs or or mutual funds. And and the idea that you can somehow you know modify your risk dramatically by uh, diversification in the stock market and and this kind of systemic event that you said would just it just makes that so obvious that that isn't true like when there is a systemic event something that's affecting the market as a whole all the mutual funds go down like crazy. It's, you know, you can't yeah. be in a, secu- a conservative mutual. You could have a beta of one. You could have a minus. You could have, you could have much less volatility in the market. And you're still going down like a brick. Because the fear level that goes out across the community of investors when a systemic event is going on takes everything down. So just as a rising tide lifts all the boats, a falling tide drops all the boats. It doesn't yeah. matter how good your boat is.
1: Okay? Yeah. And it's a very interesting way because I've really been wondering, you know, how much I should be paying attention to this regard as it relates to investing. And so basically, I should be paying attention from the perspective of maybe this will let me get a good deal coming up.
0: Yeah, now think about which which companies you would be looking at in particular uh, to be looking to get a good deal. Um, if you've got a, let's say you've got 15, 20 companies after you've been at this for a few years, 15 or 20 companies on a watch list that you really understand, they're in industries you've learned about, you've done your mm-hmm. homework, you, you know what you want to pay for them, and um, you're looking at all of them during this systemic event. The ones that are most likely to be really, to reach into the what we call the green zone, to go into a margin of safety uh, price about 50% below the real value of the business, are companies that are already struggling in some sort of other systemic event or other, sorry, industry related event? So let's think about that for a second. Right now, um, one of the biggest industries in the world, energy, is going through a dual major train wreck, right? A dual train wreck. So the first train wreck was the Fukushima meltdown. With nuclear reactors, and Japan and Germany shut down all their nuclear reactors, creating an enormous oversupply of uranium to the rest of the market. So, all the uranium companies have gone down like a brick. So, they're already in a depression, right? Uh,
1: Okay, sorry, I I thought you were going somewhere else totally with the dual event. I thought you were going to say, like, energy companies are going down and the election is happening, which is. Making uncertainty happen. And those are the two.
0: That's a triple event. So, I, <laughs> I guess, in a sense. So, first off, we've got this industry, the nuclear power that's just fallen off the table. Yeah. Um, and maybe reaching bottom here someplace soon or is already there. And then you've got the oil companies who have gone through this huge oversupply of oil created by fracking in the US, which in effect was like adding another Middle Eastern country to the world's oil out of nowhere in terms of the amount of oil they were pumping. And now, about by the end of this year, about 50% of the US oil energy companies, uh, ex- exploration companies, will have gone bankrupt and gone out of business. Um, and the oil prices are reflecting that by moving from 30 all the way back up to 50 now. Russia and the Middle East are trying to do a deal to keep the pumping down to a reasonable level uh, to keep the price up. But oil is already in a major league depression. Right? I mean, half of your companies are bankrupt. That's a depression. So you would be looking, if oil is an interesting area for you to be looking at, Then, and you've already got a couple companies on your list, then this systemic problem of the election, the systemic change in the price of the overall market with nothing to do with oil, might take them down another 15% or 20%, which would give you a great place to buy it at. So, yeah, yeah, you'd be looking at the election as the way to pick some of this stuff up.
1: Okay, this is actually really, really helpful. This is really, um, I just wasn't sure where to direct my attention regarding this election. You know, I was thinking, like, should I be, like, I don't know, buying something or selling something the day before? But to me, that seems like such speculation and the opposite of. You know, rule one: value investing.
0: It is, and and by the way, the speculators are speculating wildly right now. I mean, there's oh, the, of course, oh yeah, of course. Option prices are up, and and the market's moving down aggressively on the Russell right now, and then it bounces back up because of this thing in the election, and then it bounces down because of that thing in the election, and the odds of this president being elected and that president being elected are changing every day, and all of this just feeds the mania of speculation. And it's an indication of how crazy it is for academic professors to be considered uh, to have a reasonable thesis about how the market works when they come out with this nonsense that the market is rational. My God, how can you look at the market moving around like a, like just out of control volatility and say, "Oh well, this is all being done for rational," you know? But for, I for promise you, reasons.
1: I promise you most of the people who are buying or selling are, could tell you an amazing rational argument for exactly why they're doing what they're doing. <laughs> and then, you know, the next poll comes out and they have to change everything they said.
0: <laughs> you know, that, do you know, the funny thing is that so much of the volatility is created in the options market. You know, that's that's how they judge the the uh, value of the volatility index called the VIX. Uh, it's based on thirty day option spreads opening up and closing. And so as spreads open up between you know what people are willing to pay and and what people uh, are willing to um, to sell, the people being the market makers in there, as that spread opens up, it's an indication that there's a lot of fear. Mm. And so um, because the market makers don't want to get stuck with something they can't unload at that price and they're not sure because of the volatility. So they, they open up the spread and the fear, and that comes from fear. So you have this fear rising, and fear is nowhere in any of the academic papers that won all the Nobel Prizes about you know how you figure out the risk-balanced portfolios. <laughs> There's no discussion of fear, none. And yet, the market moves on fear and greed it moves on these twin emotions that drive so much of the market and anybody that doesn't think that is sitting in an ivory tower someplace with the windows closed so (laughs) it's just i mean think about the real estate market how rational is that market and it moves way slower than the stock market. I mean, if anything's going to be rational, it should be real estate. I mean, it moves very slowly. You don't have to worry about the bottom falling out on you next week for some reason you never saw coming in Hungary or something. You, no, but the real estate market, how could you defend rationality in the real estate market when all people were doing is paying more than the last guy and hoping the next guy will pay more than they paid? And you've got, you know.
1: That's, I mean, that's how. That's how.
0: Yeah, and so there's so. this
1: not rational. <laughs> It's, right so there's a certain point where you go well your rationality is not actually rational and <laughs> yeah, your uh, reason you, isn't you, you rational. get it you get into a giant black hole of logic
0: right right and so we we can see that as the elections coming up the stock the the options market is getting more volatile and and that's a reflection of fear and fear is not a rational thing mm. fears it well it, you
1: started out saying something about the Wilshire 5000 do you use that? to help you figure out how much fear is in the market?
0: No, but I do use it to figure out how much value is in the market related to, uh, to earnings. It, 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 I mean, it's a weird way of saying it, but let me just put it like this. There's a relationship between the Wilshire 5000, which is the biggest, broadest market of stocks, and our gross domestic product, which is the revenue of the, the United States. And you think about it, here you've got all these stocks, which are the guys producing the revenue of the United States, predominantly. And then you've got um, the actual revenue number, which is GDP. And the Federal Reserve in St. Louis, you should write this down. This is a good thing for you to track. The okay. Federal Reserve in St. Louis has a chart called the Wilshire GDP, and you can Google it just by Googling FRED, F-R-E-D, which is the St. Louis Federal Reserve and Wilshire GDP, and this chart will come up. And this chart shows that um, basically when the the Wilshire, the price of all the stocks in the market is about 60% of GDP, that's a really cheap market. And and in general, you'd want to be buying stocks. And there's going to be stocks on sale in that market in the Wilshire. When the Wilshire gets to 100% of GDP, when those two things are priced about the same, then historically, the stock market has peaked and drops from there, all right? Okay. So it's a it's a very slow-moving and very broad uh, indicator of fundamental value relative to price. And and you can just see, uh, you know, all the way back to the 1950s.
1: Hmm.
0: And you know what? Right now, it's at about 128% of GDP. It's
1: Which indicates a crash coming, is what you're saying.
0: Right. And in other words, it just... Every time it's been there in the past, the markets come down like a brick.
1: Okay. Well, I did notice that when you were saying about what to look for after an election um, to take advantage of as a Rule 1 investor, you didn't say a word about prices going up and we could maybe sell some of our, <laughs> I know. Some of our shares. It was all, when things go down, you can buy.
0: And that's, and that's really historical. I mean, prices don't tend to go up right during and after election season. And that makes sense, because why? Because you've got uncertainty. Because of fear, yeah. Yeah. You have uncertainty, uncertainty breeds fear, fear breeds let's get out of here and wait and see what happens. Now, back to Obama in 2008, um, you know, the the market cratered for all kinds of reasons, but the uncertainty of a new administration coming in certainly raised the bar on, on the stock market continuing to crash. And it finally bottomed out, you know, in the first quarter of his administration. As everybody saw that, you know, the the America can will continue to go and the market bottomed and people started getting in on all those good deals, including me. So then in 2012, again, a big wave of volatility coming into the market right before the election. And then by January of, of 2013 it was taken off again it was Hmm. rocking and rolling so a lot of a lot of funds step back a lot of individuals step back as this uncertainty increases so if you're ever looking for maybe an entry point what's going to happen to a great company that you want to buy and you think it might get cheaper what can make it cheaper is a guaranteed time of uncertainty and that's what we have in elections
1: that's super helpful actually cool so because it's nice, you know. As I'm building a list of companies to watch for, I, I, I can tend to get a little bit hopeless, a little bit like these are never going to get to the price where I can buy it. Right. Like I could wait for twenty years and it's not going to happen. Right. But it's nice. But not, it's no, nice no, that. That's not true. Um, what did you say?
0: I said that it won't be twenty years.
1: Okay, but it feels like that. Sure. And uh, and so I'm not saying I necessarily want the market go, to go down, but it'd be a little bit nice if the market went down.
0: So it would be a buy, little nice. So it I would could be. buy a couple things. It would be really nice. And and uh, you know I hate to you know say it, but we are anti-fragile investors. We great book by the way, that one, Nicholas Taleb. Such a good book
1: by yeah. Nicholas Taleb.
0: Yep, excellent book. And, it and made, it's really
1: inspired a lot of my investing practice actually. And with becoming, trying to become anti-fragile, it's a, which is a different thing than being strong, which yeah. I find very
0: interesting. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Yeah. I mean, that it it's different than being a willow that bends with the wind. No, it's not that. It's the, it's the seeds that don't sprout in the forest till you have a fire that burns everything. You need this big event, and that's really where we are. we are. We're investors that need these events in order to put something that, there's no reason this should go on sale, Great company, fabulous management, you know, very profitable, lots of cash flow. No way should that go on sale. So we need fear in order for that to happen. Hmm. We're like that little seed that needs a forest fire. I like that, yeah. Yeah, It's pretty cool, and that makes us anti-fragile. It also makes us very boring. (laughs) (laughs) We mostly do nothing but read. We read, we read some more, we read some more. (laughs) <laughs> I may have told you this before but but Monesh Pebri's wife was standing by him at a hedge fund conference, and somebody asked Monesh how many people does it take to run a one billion dollar hedge fund Pebri's famous <laughs> hedge fund manager, and uh-huh. his wife stuck her nose in and said said it takes point one
1: <laughs> <laughs> meaning he works like an hour a day <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: The rest of it's reading time, right? I mean, she doesn't count that as work. But he's reading, reading, reading. He's thinking, thinking, thinking. You know, we put away a lot of time to read and read and read and read. And you build this watch list and you just wait and you be patient. I mean, Charlie Munger, you know, probably doesn't buy green bananas. He's 92 years old and he hasn't bought a stock. He's waiting patiently. He's in cash. He hasn't bought a stock for three years. So. That's really patience, you know, and Charlie says over and over again that the key is that he and Warren don't do a lot. You know, Buffett described this style of investing as laziness bordering on sloth. So, yeah, point one. But you got to get used to the idea that you're really, your job is to build the watch list and to know the value of the businesses. And the market, I promise, will fluctuate and give you those businesses on sale. It just takes time. Okay, so
1: we are going to watch for that. And uh, and talk about it on the podcast coming up.
0: Sounds good. All right, be we'll be we forward to see what, to see what happens. happens this week. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> okay. So but... let me
1: make an announcement before we go. Okay. Um, everybody, let's. We will get back to Moat next time on what I believe is part seven of our multi-part series. So um, so come look for that, and we're going to be starting some book reading soon. And uh, and then we're going to get to the 10Ks that we've been promising to talk about for a while. Let yeah. me talk about.
0: I'm coming to Zurich, and we're going to record a couple of these in Zurich. It's going to be really it's fun. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. until then, time to go play. See
1: you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule 1 podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form and you guys can attend for free So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.